Would you please stand for the reading of, of God's word as you are able. Uh, our reading this morning comes from 1 Corinthians chapter 7, verses 17 uh, through 24. This is God's word. Nevertheless, each person should live as a believer in whatever situation the Lord has assigned to them, just as God has called them. This is the rule I lay down in, in all the churches. Was a man already circumcised when he was called? He should not become uncircumcised. Was a man uncircumcised when he was called? He should not be circumcised. Circumcision is nothing and uncircumcision is nothing. Keeping God's commands is what counts. Each person should remain in the situation they were in when God called them. Were you a slave when you were called? Don't let it trouble you, although if you can gain your freedom, do so. For the one who was a slave when called to faith in the Lord is the Lord's freed person. Similarly, the one who was free when called is Christ's slave. You were bought at a price. Do not become slaves of human beings. Brothers and sisters, each person as responsible to God should remain in the situation they were in when God called them. This is God's word. Please be seated. All right, brothers and sisters, first item of business, kids are dismissed for Children's Church. Uh, reminder to parents uh, for those kids through second grade that uh, please pick them up either right before or right after you take communion after the message. Uh, if you're just tuning in for the first time, if you're here, uh, I know we have a lot of folks that uh, probably looked at the weather and said, you know, live stream sounds pretty good. Uh, so we welcome you, and we welcome you that uh, are the true frozen chosen that decided to show up in person despite the weather and getting stuck. Uh, anybody get stuck on the way here, by the way? Do I have, no, you guys are, all have like four-wheel drive pickup trucks or what? Uh, good work on getting here. That's good. That's good. You uh, saw a commissioning of elders uh, this week, and one of the things we're going to do next week is do the same for our deacons. So we have some, not only uh, a new deaconess, but we are also going to plan to commission all the deacons uh, because one of the unique things that we did last week during our annual celebration is we added to our bylaws uh, the requirements that deacons are now uh, affirmed by our covenant members, and that is the first time that that has happened in our history. We did a different process prior to that, and one of the ways we want to celebrate that is by also commissioning our deacons uh, next week as well. Uh, if you're here again for the first time or tuning in for the first time, we are doing a sermon series through the book of 1 Corinthians. It's been a wild ride so far. The last uh, couple chapters have mainly dealt with topics like body and sex and marriage and singleness. We have one more sermon related to those things next week, uh, where it's mainly a sermon about the call of singleness. Today, you get a break from that. So if the, the, all the sex talk has been a little intense for you, you get a break of that today, because today we're going to talk about slavery. So that's how we're going to be taking our break today, okay? So another intense topic, but very, very important for the people of God to understand what Scripture truly says about uh, that horrific institution in human history. So let's go ahead and prepare our hearts for this message by praying. Lord Jesus, thank you for this gathering of people. Thank you for those that are pausing at home to tune in. Thank you for the people here. Lord, we know that your spirit is at work in our hearts and we want to submit to that spirit. We want to be reminded that we belong to the Lord Jesus. 
uh, that he is our Lord and we are his people. We want to be transformed by that word and not to fall into traps and snares that are worldly, injustices that this world believes in or upholds. Lord, we want those to see. We want to see those dismantled by the power of the gospel, whether it's in the world at large or if there's any remnant of it in our hearts. Lord, we want your gospel to be the thing that transforms our lives. We pray this in Jesus' name. Amen. Now, if you think it might be a little odd that we're pausing and doing an entire sermon on a couple, of the mess, a couple of the verses in the context of 1 Corinthians 7 that mainly deals with kind of relationships of marriage and sex and body, I want to highlight why it's important to pause even though there's a couple, just a couple of verses that reference slavery. And I want to highlight the importance of pausing and, and tackling something like this from reading an email that I got uh, several years ago from a college student who went to St. Thomas. I say several years ago so you guys don't go on some type of witch hunt to try to figure out who this student is. They probably graduated and then, you know, they're in the marketplace uh, at this point, so you do not know this person. But that, I think that captures well uh, why this is a big deal, why we need to pause and think about these things deeply. He said in the email to me, and this was during a time that we were preaching on some of these uh, sticky topics uh, several years ago. He said, quote, a while ago I started my quest to finish the Bible in a year. As I trudged through Leviticus, I found a chapter that was difficult to understand and deal with. Weeks ago, you gave a sermon about modern-day slavery and we have been, how we've been running as a society sex trafficking awareness uh, uh, campaigns, and we've been doing that at St. Thomas, which also deals with modern-day slavery. However, in Leviticus chapter 25, God clearly, at least in my mind, not only condones slavery, but instructs his people to take people as slaves. And he quotes Leviticus 25, 44 through 45, which says, your male and female slaves are to come from nations around you. From them you may buy slaves. You may also buy some temporary residents living among you and members of their clans born in your country, and they will become your property. And he went on to talk a little bit more about some other things, but it shows you there, if you're reading the Bible, for example, you do a Bible reading plan, yeah, when you hit Leviticus, there's some laws that come up, and it's just like, how is that in Scripture, and how do I wrap my mind around that, and how does the Christian church understand these things, not only within the context of Scripture, but also in the context of interpretive history in the Christian church? And I bring that up because we're not dealing with a passage in Leviticus. We're dealing with a passage in 1 Corinthians 7 uh, that is brought up. And if you look at especially the American church in church history all, all the way back to the 1800s, you could go to different churches in America in the 1800s and hear a pastor preach on 1 Corinthians 7 and, and 17 through 21, and it gets to the part about slavery, and you could hear two very different messages and if you're like me, there's, there's, there's something there to consider because I think nowadays, and rightfully so, most of us, if we were asked, what does the Bible teach about slavery, we would say that the Bible teaches that slavery is sinful and ought to be demolished with the power of the gospel. We're all on the same page. But isn't it a curious thing that if you go back into our history, that wasn't always the case? In fact, if you went to normal churches around the 1800s, the majority of them would say that the Bible affirms the institution of slavery, doesn't say that it's sinful. And if you're like me and you know that history, doesn't part of you wonder, like, what was going on? How, what was their argument? What was going on in society and maybe in the church that would cause them to have that 
that reading of the text, where today we don't really have that reading of the text. And what can we learn about not, not only their maybe failures with that, but maybe apply it to our present day so we don't have other gigantic blind spots. So what I'm going to do in this passage, before I even get to 1 Corinthians, as uh, I'm going to give you what that argument would have been back in those days, what, what, what you might have heard, unpack a little bit of like what culturally was happening behind that that made those arguments popular, and then even maybe give an example if they were preaching on 1 Corinthians 7, what that would sound like. So that's the first half of the message. The second half I will deal with and unpack what the global Christian faith throughout history taught about these things and how to put that text, a text like 1 Corinthians 7, in its proper context, not only in Scripture, but also in church history. And then I'll finally say some things about 1 Corinthians 7 uh, from my understanding of the text in consensus with that voice. All right, so let's go back then to the 1800s. And this is a summary, some of the things I'm about to lay out here from an article I read that really summarized well uh, some works that were actually published this specific one was actually published by a pastor and a scholar in 1847, and this is what their argument would have sounded like that would say, hey, if you read the Bible, it supports the institution of slavery. So what was that argument? Here it is. First, they would say, look at the Old Testament. The Old Testament permits slavery. Look at all, all the Old Testament laws and passages in, 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 in books like Deuteronomy and Leviticus. And it says there, and it would reference maybe a verse like it was quoted by that uh, St. Thomas student, that says, look, it says, hey, own slaves, and, and, and it says nothing about condemning it, but it just expresses it as normal. The second argument they would make is that they would go to the New Testament and say that the New Testament approves slavery. They would look to Jesus and say he uses language of bondage and free to make uh, points and spiritual points, and he makes these references to this institution without blushing. And then they would point to Paul, who says and tells slaves to obey their masters. A third argument he would make is if Jesus and the New Testament authors were so against slavery, then why didn't they just come right out and say so? If they truly thought it was sinful, then they would have said so more clearly. And the fourth and final ar argument is this. They would say that the institution of slavery may be permissible, but then they would often say the abuse of slaves should never be tolerated. The Bible might not condemn slavery, but it does clearly say the abuse of slaves is sinful. So if you went to a church in the 1800s, that's what you would have heard as the argument for this. That's the argument in a nutshell. And you might be thinking right now, so what's the counter argument, right? Or how in the world, this might be another thing you're thinking, how in the world do people buy into this argument? Now, like I said, in the second half of this message, I'm going to give you that counter argument. But I think it's important just not, not to just move on from this, but try to uh, put this in the context of the historical moment that this was happening in so that you can wrap your mind around how it became so uh, popular to hear an argument like this and not have much for pushback. So here are some of the social realities in play at the moment. And a lot of this comes from a really good book on this subject uh, by Mark Knoll. It's a book called The Civil War as a Theological Crisis. And he lays out at least three things that were going on in society that made an argument like I just gave something that was very believable. So number one, this is one of the, the parts of what was going on in society at the time that made it believable. 
One of the things that those that were trying to support this institution of slavery is they would point to other Christians that were making arguments against the institution of slavery. And they would say, and these, these people that were making arguments against slavery, they would do things like consider the broader storyline of scripture, the context of each verse, and the historical background, as, as you would want to when you're studying a, a, what the Bible says about anything. But some who made those same arguments against slavery along those same lines were also folks who denied other foundational doctrines of the church. And so they would make uh, uh, anti-slavery arguments, but then they would also apply uh, a similar framework to things like miracles and just say, look, you know, sometimes the Bible doesn't get everything right, or maybe we just don't understand it like sophisticated, enlightened people. And so then there were others that were making these arguments that would abandon uh, things like miracles or the physical resurrection of the dead while they're doing that. And so what the opponents would do in that situation is they would take those who still embrace like the Nicene and Apostles' Creed, just historic, orthodox uh, Christians that made these arguments, and they would lump them in with those that were making these arguments but abandoning key parts of the Christian faith. And they would essentially say they're all the same people. So if you want to go down this rabbit hole of, of denying what the Bible says about slavery, then soon you're going to be denying miracles, and then you're going to be de denying the resurrection. So that's what was, what was going on socially, and that was one of the talking points you would have heard. The second thing that was going on is that at this time, there was an inability to see the unity of humanity, especially as connected by blood through the descendants of Adam and Eve, that all humanity has descended by, from one father and one mother, and as, as well as seeing how that historical reality is connected to the doctrine of Imango Dei, that we're all made of an image of God. Now you might say, well, why was there an inability to see that? I see that so clearly, why did they miss that? And that's because very few people saw that you don't, didn't only have to ask, ask and answer this question, what does the Bible say about slavery? They, at the time, they would hardly answer, ask and answer this question, which is tied up in it. What does the Bible say about race? And at the time, they would just not even touch that question, but only focus on the other question. Here's the third uh, reality that was happening during this time. American culture then and, and now is one of rugged individualism. There are blessings to this reality and there are major drawbacks. And one of the negative features of this rugged individualism is that people have uh, this kind of maybe unrealistic confidence to sit down with their Bible without any attention to other Christians or other historic voices of Christianity in our ears. And it's this belief that you can just simply open the Bible, read a verse, and determine your, yourself what it says without being any type of bias or importing some type of personal experience into the text. There's just this unrealistic confidence that that's what you could do, right? And against this cultural reality, any nuanced argument that took on things like the greater context and the background of a text and the whole of church history into consideration didn't gain any ground in the culture's ear because that is just what the theological elites are trying to do, to call into question the plain meaning of the text. So that's what was going on at the time. Those were the social realities that led to somebody being, making an argument like I just gave you an example of and that there wasn't as much pushback as you think there would be. So what would it sound like, all right? Say if you go back to the 1860s and went into a church who said that the Bible endorsed slavery, 
what would the sermon sound like if they were preaching on, let's say, 1 Corinthians 7.21? The pastor would say this. Open your Bibles to 1 Corinthians 7.21 and let's read what it says. And what does it say? It says that a slave to a slave, Paul writing to a slave, don't let it trouble you if you become a Christian when you're a slave. So here Paul doesn't condemn slavery or say it's a sin when he has an opportunity to do so. Now you might get a bishop or some fancy academic with seminary training to go on and on and on about some obscure background uh, and some other passages in the Bible, but you don't need them to tell you what this passage means. Just read it for yourself and use your own common sense to understand these words. In fact, look at all these Christian intellectuals around here telling you about the original meaning of this text and the background and all this sophisticated stuff. And what did they believe? Do they even believe in miracles anymore? No, they deny miracles because that's what happens when you start to deny the plain meaning of the text, and then you also will go on to deny some fundamental doctrines of the Christian faith. That's what you would hear if you were in a church in the 1860s preaching on a text like this. Now, if it's not clear by now, I think that is a bunch of BS, right? I do not believe any of that, and I think there are some significant things that we need to learn as a church of like why this existed and why so much of the American church bought into that and maybe even how we can push back on some of those social realities that made it conceivable to even believe in something like this. So first, let me present you a a real uh, simple version of the biblical argument against slavery, okay? Here is the summary. I'm going back to that same article I referenced before. First, read Matthew 19.19. And it details one of the greatest commandments. And the greatest commandment is simply this. Love your neighbor as yourself. And you simply cannot love your neighbor when you deny your neighbor's personal freedom. Second, slavery in the Old Testament cannot be understood without context. There's not only a failure to see the differences uh, from, for those that uh, promoted uh, slavery during these days, a difference between American slavery and ancient Near Eastern slavery, or indentured servitude, for example, but they also failed to grasp the bigger and major story of the Old Testament and to put it in that simple context. The bigger story of the Old Testament is that God redeemed Israel out of what? Slavery. And then they went on to uh, gain the promised land that was occupied by another nation. This is an exceptional event in Scripture, and, and, it's, it's, and it happened during a time that slavery already existed. The people of Israel didn't invent this institution. They were part of a sinful, fallen, broken world where this institution already existed, even though they did not endorse it. It's a fallen reality of the world that they were redeemed out of. And this point is really connected to the third one. And that is, consider how the Old Testament deals with polygamy. Now, even back in the 1800s, and some of the the pastors that would preach a sermon like I gave you an example of, not one of them would say that the Old Testament endorses polygamy, and that's a problem, because that's a glaring inconsistency with how can you say that it doesn't endorse polygamy, because there's all these laws about how to moderate and regulate polygamy, but you seem to be okay with slavery, but not okay with polygamy. What is the inconsistency? Well, this is because what the Christian church has believed about marriage. 
We know that in the beginning God created them male and female to become husband and wife. And the one man and the one woman become one flesh. And this is the institution that God has ordered since the dawn of creation. So polygamy is not how God ordained marriage to be. It's a sinful practice that the nation of Israel had to regulate even as God's people were moving back to God's original design for marriage. And in the same way, slavery is a sinful practice in the world that had to be regulated in the Old Testament law as God people, God's people moved everyone in their household towards freedom from slavery. Because in the beginning, God didn't create human beings to belong to other human beings. We are created to belong to God and God alone. Number four, the New Testament never tolerates slavery. And the principles of the New Testament, in fact, dismantle slavery. Paul says that the gospel transforms the nature of all relationships into being Christians who are brothers and sisters in Christ. The gospel is also a message about freedom from sin and bondage in this world to belonging to the Lord Jesus alone. The Bible says that we are all made in God's image, called to love God and neighbor, and to bring the gospel to every tongue, tribe, and nation under heaven. And it's impossible for slavery or racism to continue when it meets the transformative power of the gospel. And that is what we believe that scripture really teaches. But let's go back to those social realities because I think there's some things that we need to learn so we don't make similar mistakes, maybe not with issues of slavery or race, although that can still happen, but there's other things that we need to learn about what happened here so we don't make the same mistakes in how we understand scripture and apply it to all of life. And I'm gonna go back to Noel's work to unpack some of those things here. First, in that understanding and what was happening culturally at the time, there was a complete failure to see how many people throughout church history, during the 1800s I'm talking about, that there are voices throughout church history that made strong arguments against slavery. In church history, you can read St. Augustine and St. John Chrysostom, or you can read Charles Spurgeon and John Wesley or William Wilberforce, or even my main theological crush, my man Herman Bovink, all of those guys were opposed to slavery and called out that sinful institution. And the most faithful example of this throughout church history, especially if you're talking about American church history, is the example and the voice of the African-American church. When you listen and read the voices of Frederick Douglass, or Lamel Hayes, or Harriet Tubman, or Sojourner Truth. But one of the realities that we see during the 1800s, and maybe even today, is that those voices are often ignored. That Christians often like to read people from their own theological tribe, or from people that look like them, but they rarely go out to faithful Christian voices that also believed in the resurrection, believed in miracles, could confess the apostles and Nicene Creed, but then had something to say that pushes back on some of the things you believe in and say, well, since that's not my theological people, I'm going to ignore them. And when you ignore the faithful voices of other Christians, whether it's back then or right now, you will have blind spots in your faith. If there is a faithful Christian who confesses the same creeds as you do and has something to say that pushes back on something you believe in, open your ears to that brother and sister in Christ because they might have something to say. All right? Second thing to keep in mind. 
There were faithful church leaders who eventually started to expose how racism was the thing that was behind and supporting slavery. And some leaders, let me give you just one of the thought experiments that pastors, faithful pastor voices were saying to push back on this and to also expose the reality of racism behind slavery. All right, so they would say something like this. All right, let's grant you, you know, those of you that are pro-slavery, let's grant the argument that slavery is okay in the scripture, and it may be even, and this is an argument that some of the pro-slavery voices would say, that it's even one of those things that God uses Christians who, 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 who own slaves to promote holiness and happiness in the world. So that's a real argument. So they took on that argument. Let's say that's true, all right? Let's just grant that for, for this thought experiment then why is the institution only applied to this one group that has a certain color of skin? If this is true and the Bible promotes slavery for happiness and wholeness, why aren't white folks being enslaved? And that line of questioning started to expose that what you're really after is not just to support slavery, but you're also trying to justify this racist implications of that in your own heart. One pastor said, quote, if then it could be established that slavery promotes the holiness and happiness of slaves, it would follow that as it does not promote the happiness and, uh, uh, oh, sorry, the holiness and happiness of the white population. It would be well then for white people to be enslaved in order for their happiness and holiness, would it not? But obviously, that is a very uncomfortable argument for many of those who promoted slavery in the 1800s, because arguments like this and others started to expose what was really behind the support of the American slave trade, and that was an awful and unjust and wicked sin of racism. Finally, let's deal with the the cultural reality of the so-called plain meaning of the text. One of the things that was also exposed, if that's really what you believed about the Bible, though if the Bible was so clear that anybody could just open it, right, anybody could just open it and read it and it would be so clear that the Bible endorsed slavery, then why, and this was the argument during that day, then why are you so afraid to teach your slaves how to read so that they could read the Bible? That's one of the most wicked things you would read about this history. But slave owners did not want to teach the slaves how to read because they were scared that they would pick up the Bible. And scared. Why would they be scared if what they would do is pick up and read the plain meaning of the scriptures and then they would come to your conclusion? But they knew deep down that if they picked up the scriptures, that would not happen because the plain meaning of the text is messages like Exodus where God's people are redeemed from slavery. It's the plain meaning of texts like this that we'll get to, where the whole relationship that you have transforms in the gospel. So if you are a slave actually in Christ, you are free. But if you think you are free, no, 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 no. You are a slave because you belong to Jesus Christ. And those types of transformative messages, they knew back then if those that, that, that were enslaved would read it, the plain meaning of the gospel would become abundantly clear, and it's a message of redemption and breaking people free from bondage of oppression. One of the examples of this uh, reality of how to read Scripture comes from the Reformed tradition, and it's an approach to Scripture that they call the analogy of Scripture. 
And this is an interpretive approach that says we have difficult passages in Scripture, whether they're difficult because there's not a lot of verses about it or we're so far removed from the historical context that it's hard to understand exactly what was going on. So you take these difficult passages and they're always understood in light of the clearer passages. That's what the analogy of Scripture teaches. This Reformation of uh, 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 this Reformation principle teaches that's how you understand difficult texts. So what's clear in Scripture if you're adding that principle? This is what's clear in Scripture. God created the heavens and the earth, and he created humanity in his own image. Yet humanity fell to sin and it in impacts our entire world and all of our relationships. But God doesn't leave us in bondage to sin. He redeems us and gives us salvation in Christ. And now in Christ, God is renewing all things by calling us to love and enjoy him forever, to love our neighbors as ourselves, and to see that all people would be free from sin and bondage in this world and belong to God wholly forever. So if you take those principles and look at our text, let's finally get to the verses that we have today in conclusion. Let's read these verses again. Paul writes, were you a slave when you were called? Don't let it trouble you. Although if you can gain your freedom, do so. For the one who was a slave when called to faith in the Lord is the Lord's freed person. Similarly, the one who was free when called is Christ's slave. You were bought at a price. Do not become slaves of human beings. Brothers and sisters, each person as responsible to God should remain in the situation they were in when God called them. So what does this text say in light of the analogy of Scripture, in light of the good news of the gospel? Paul says to slaves in Corinth, don't let this situation bother you. But he doesn't go on to say because slavery is okay. He says it's because God is redeeming all things, and he's going to break the back of this institution and the impression that this institution gives. And he says, how is he going to do that? Well, one of the things that happens is when you come to the gospel and you're in this household where you're a slave and you have a master, what happens to the dynamic of your relationship? Well, that's not the nature of your relationship anymore. You're not a slave and you're not a master. What actually happens is now that master, he thinks he's free, but you know what he really is in Christ? He is a slave. And you, slave, you think that you are enslaved, but in reality, in the gospel of Jesus Christ, you are free. And this is something that Paul does all over the place, that the nature of the gospel utterly transforms how human beings relate to each other. And especially when we relate to one another in oppressive ways, it changes the nature of that relationship so the slave becomes free, and the master now, the free person, is enslaved to Christ. And he gives this exhortation, do not become slaves of human beings. Why? Because it's this reality. It's not God's purposes for us to belong to other human beings. How God has ordered creation and how, what he does in the gospel of Jesus Christ is what ultimately happens is we belong to him. We belong to the Lord Jesus. And any human being that says you belong to them is teaching you a heresy that is so wicked it belongs in the pit of hell because the gospel is a message of freedom and transformation and bringing people into unity as brothers and sisters of Jesus Christ. That is why uh, I think it sticks out when you actually look at church history and you even look at human history. I remember reading a sociologist, uh, his name is Rodney Stark, 
And he wrote a book where he's looking at unique movements that are connected to the Christian faith. And at the time that he wrote this, he, he was agnostic. He wasn't a Christian. That, that changed over time. But he was just looking at this stuff as a sociologist. And one of the things he found curious is why did, eventually, with, with a world that was so entrenched in slavery, uh, both then and now, because modern-day slavery is still very much a thing, and human trafficking is very much a thing, why is it in Western history it eventually led to movements of abolitionists and emancipation and freedom? Why did that happen in Western history and in not other parts of the world? And this is what he says, quote, of all the world's religions, including the three great monotheisms, only in Christianity did the idea develop that slavery was sinful and must be abolished. And I hope you can see clearly now by me giving you the background and giving you a true biblical scope of the, the global Christian faith and how to read the scriptures and understand these things and even blind spots that Christians may develop, that when you do those things and you truly embrace all the implications of the gospel, that's indeed why in Western history eventually slavery is abolished and why Christians continue and need to continue to call out the sin of racism in our society because the gospel puts to death the sin of slavery and racism and brings humanity back together because we all belong not to human beings. We belong to Jesus Christ and to Jesus Christ alone. Let's move again as we do each and every week, brothers and sisters, to a time of communion where we as brothers and sisters in Christ come to this table united in him, belonging to him, as we remember the price that Jesus paid in his broken body and shed blood to bring humanity back together. How are we going to do this? The music team is coming back up, and after we pray, will uh, lead us in a time of singing and response. And during that first song, uh, you're invited to come to this table to take a piece of bread, to take a cup, go back to your seat, and you can take communion as you feel led. If you're here this morning, you don't identify with the Christian faith, you don't have faith in Jesus, don't feel any pressure to participate in this time. Uh, don't don't uh, feel like you have to fit in because we, we're glad you're here. We're glad that you're exploring the Christian faith and we want you to continue to do that here. And if you find a home here, know that you're finding a home in this church where we are going to look at these issues head on because they are important so that we can get a biblical grasp of the whole counsel of God. If you're here this morning and this is your church home or even if you're visiting and you believe in Jesus, you are welcome to this table to practice and celebrate this table with us. Paul writes this about the table in 1 Corinthians 11. For I received from the Lord what I also passed on to you, that the Lord Jesus, on the night when he was betrayed, took bread. And we had given thanks, he broke it and said, This is my body, which is for you. Do this in remembrance of me. In the same way, after supper, he took the cup, saying, This cup is the new covenant in my blood. Do this whenever you drink it in remembrance of me. For whenever you eat this bread and drink this cup, you proclaim the Lord's death until he comes. I want to give you a moment to pause and to pray privately to prepare your hearts for this table, and then we're going to close this time by confessing the Apostles' Creed together. So go to the Lord in prayer. Give to him your burdens. Give to him your sins. Confess your sins to him because he is faithful and just to forgive you your sins. The brokenness you see in this world, give that to Jesus and ask for his renewal and lament these realities. Bring those things to the Lord in prayer right now.
Now let's close this time by confessing this creed together. We believe in God, the Father Almighty, creator of heaven and earth. We believe in Jesus Christ, his only Son, our Lord, who is conceived by the Holy Spirit, born of the Virgin Mary, suffered under Pontius Pilate, was crucified, died, and was buried. He descended to the dead. On the third day, he rose again. He ascended into heaven. He is seated at the right hand of the Father, and he will come to judge the living and the dead. We believe in the Holy Spirit, the Holy Christian Church, the communion of saints, the forgiveness of sins, the resurrection of the body, and the life everlasting. Amen.